Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. Each week we bring to you on this podcast stories from the dark side and the light side of both addiction and recovery. And this week I'm so excited to have with me a guest, Mariana Casagranda, who is not only my guest for today's interview. I just am too excited not to share that she has accepted my invitation to co-host this season of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, which is devoted to artists in recovery. So Mariana is an artist. She is in long-term recovery from multiple addictions. She is someone who is deeply rooted in her intuition, metaphysics, astrology. We have so much in common, and I think you're really going to love her. So Mariana, what have I left out, or what do you want to say to begin to let our audience of listeners get to know you? Wow. That was quite a fabulous entry. I loved it. Um, what do I want to add? Well, thank you for the invite on both levels. And I uh, appreciate the opportunities both to speak to my the truth of my life um, as an addict and then a recovering addict and then an artist and et cetera. Um, and also just, you know, the joy of life at long last being realized on so many levels. Um, so yes, thank you for the invite. I'm uh, excited to be here as well and excited to co-host. Really excited about that too. Um, so here I am. So tell mm. us the way I ask all of my guests mm -hmm. about your journey. When did recovery mm -hmm. start for you? What was the straw that broke the camel's proverbial back mm -hmm. that said, oh, now's the time to enter into recovery? Right. So I began recovery shortly before 1991, but officially, um, I began my recovery in AA in 1991. So I'm approaching 32 years of sobriety. Um, I have also uh, been on the path of food, food addicts uh, in recovery. And for that, I am uh, into my 12th year of recovery of consistent abstinence. Um, I had started a bit earlier, but but um, had veered off the path, as we are known to do sometimes. And I also had um, drug addiction in my life, uh, nicotine and caffeine addiction. It went on and on. I did not, you know, I, I am the kind of, I was the kind of addict that approached uh, addiction like a giant salad bar, and I didn't want to miss a damn thing, you know? 
And really, with the exception of um, sexual misbehavior, I consumed vast quantities of all the things I've just talked about in a very compressed time period. Um, the total amount of time that I was in compulsive, neurotic, you know, addictive behaviors was roughly 11 to 12 years for most of the time. But I also, you know, can look back at my childhood and know that I was given alcohol when I was still an infant and very young because it was part of the culture. It was part of my parents' tradition. I had two parents coming from Northern Italy and they brought everything with them that they knew and knew how to do. And alcohol was part of the fabric of my background. You know, it was always there, always there. The shiny bottles were always there. And for me, having that be the wallpaper of my early uh, exposure, I remember thinking that I wasn't interested. How's that for ironic? <laughs> and I had, you know, better things to do. And getting embarrassed when I brought friends home and my father offered them a drink. You know, we're talking 14, 15 year olds. Um, and so I stopped bringing people over. I really, I didn't want, I didn't want them to see how weird, you know, my, my parents were. <laughs> um, oh God. Anyway, um, fast forward, I found myself, um, the night before going to college, um, I was going to college with a friend of mine. We were going to be roommates at this um, rather large college in Illinois. Uh, in Chicago is where I was born. And so on the eve before, what I was packing in my bags, because we were going to take off the next day in a Pinto. I don't know if you'd remember what those little vehicles were like, but they were the they size do. of a matchbook on wheels. And so we were going to put all our precious belongings in this Pinto hatchback, I believe. And what I brought and contributed were three bottles of wine in a very fancy wooden box, um, a carton of cigarettes. That was my contribution. And my roommate contributed um, marijuana and an element and some you know paraphernalia with which to smoke it now i had never done marijuana but i was determined again not to miss the bus and that began that whole career of addiction and um so anyway fast forward after uh many years of hardcore uh drinking and drugging um when i got into my graduate level work as in the arts in studio arts i had to like lower lower the the intensity because i really wanted to graduate i really wanted to have the degrees under my belt and so there was a slight easement of the drinking and the drugging but the intensity was there no matter what Believe me, I didn't miss much. And the ability and in and in um, along with that, I ended up gaining more and more weight. So I needed to eat more. And that weight in a funny way allowed me to consume even more liquor without, you know, getting ill, without losing my sense of reality. I may have blacked out once. I know I only got sick once in all my drinking career, which is very unusual for most of us. And I didn't have hangovers the next day. I didn't have all of that. You know, that's something that we share in common. I don't know oh. if you know that. No, I didn't know that. I went to college at 17 years of age. Mm -hmm. I was already drinking out of control. In fact, there was one time I went through a photo album with some college friends. And in every picture that I appeared, mm -hmm. I appeared with a drink in my hand, including being in a swimming pool and holding the drink above my head above the water. And 
I never had a blackout. Mm -hmm. No, that's not true. I did have blackouts. In fact, I had blackouts before I went to college. I never had a hangover is what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. I always woke up the Mm -hmm. next day still drunk. Mm -hmm. And I had Mm -hmm. a therapist one time tell me that the way I responded to alcohol was very similar to a Native American's physiological response. That when I was drinking, I would drink 10, 12 shots of tequila at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I I would stop drinking because I knew I needed to stop for about half an hour, an hour before I felt drunk. Mm-hmm. So I would mm-hmm. stop drinking at that mm-hmm. point in order to feel out of control and be drunk. Mm-hmm. And then I would pass out, go to sleep mm-hmm. drunk and wake up the next day still feeling very good. Mm-hmm. I had um, th- this brought up, oh, this brings up a couple of things that were just Uh, Well, funny in retrospect, not so much funny then, but um, I remember figuring out one night at the bar, there was a local bar in the town, of course, for all these college students, there were many bars, okay, and I was a visitor in all of them. There was one in particular that I really liked. It was dark enough, dingy enough, and the floors were sticky enough, you know what I mean? So I was doing kamikaze shots, and I was winding up the shot glasses, and I had about uh, at least 10 to 12. Now, that alone is a staggering amount of shots, okay? I go to the bar for the next one because, of course, rinse and repeat. This is how we live, right? So we, I go up to the bar, and it's very busy. It was a Friday or a Saturday night, right? Everybody's all over the place. And I watch the bartender make my kamikaze you know, ingredients, take those ingredients and make a much larger drink that was called something else. And the thought came to me, because as only alcoholics are inspired, what the hell am I doing wasting my time on these shots when I could get this bigger drink for another buck? So I'm like, for, I said, what was that you made? And he named it. I don't can't even remember what it was now, thank God. And I'm like, give me one of those, you know, because I'm like, I'm wasting my time. Now, this made perfect sense to me. Okay, that was that. So, so I proceeded to drink more. I don't remember, you know, how many I landed with. It never really was. I didn't care about that, but I loved lining up the shots. I thought that was really pretty funny. Um, and and I, so, I love what you, know, you said, crazy. too, Mariana, about mm. it being not so funny at the time and is really quite comical to look back on. That mm-hmm. is part of even how this show came into being, you know, is the whole idea Mm. of liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores, Mm -hmm. you know, are try to capture the personality of the alcoholic. We are liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. And we've, you know, we've done in abundance all these different drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. and caffeine Mm -hmm. and cigarettes and Mm -hmm. um, excessive sex or flirtation Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, all these different aspects of process addictions as well Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. substances. And then Mm -hmm. the, the light and the dark side is that there is light side even in addiction mostly in the rearview mirror. You know, mostly it's those of us that are lucky enough to be in recovery that can look back and say, oh my God, I used to laugh when I get home because I didn't know how I got there and I was the one driving. Right. Bingo. I think my angels saved me because I didn't know how to drive when I was in college. Thank you, Jesus, as they say in the South, because you know what? That was a good thing. Um, so I want to also highlight another memorable, one of many, you know, memorable moments. Flash forward to taking my graduate um, uh, test 
what was it? The G, not the GMAT. You know what I'm talking about. GREs, right? Thank you. Uh, Well, yes, whatever it was. And I remember the day before was my birthday. So I had put a note on my door saying, you know, tomorrow's the test. So hello, you know, like get to bed early or something to that effect. But it was my birthday. My friend said, come on, we need to celebrate. I'm like, sure, let's go. Boom. Didn't even think about it. Arrived at the test at eight in the morning, drunk. Okay, still with the effects of drinking because I didn't get home until two or three in the morning and this was eight o'clock and I thought it was hysterically funny. And I and the first part was math. The whole first part of the day was math and then the, the afternoon was reading. Uh, so the results clearly reflected my state of being. I mean, I was bad at math anyway. Uh, so I, I didn't have any high hopes for that. And I didn't really care because I realized I only needed to have good grades in terms of or good results in the comprehension because I was applying to uh, school for getting a master's of art. So the math didn't really count. It wasn't really. So I, I remember laughing hysterically with a friend who had come with me the night before because he too was taking the test and people around us appalled at us and i just remember thinking oh my god lighten up already you know like you take yourselves way too seriously so i want to say the thread that has followed me through all of this addiction was a really strong core belief that I had little to no real value, both to myself or in the actual world as a, as a person. And that to take myself seriously wasn't something I was going to be able to do. And I had no idea how to do that. That was the reality of that. You know, I watched uh, generations of women in my family live with steamer trunks of resentments and emotions unresolved and seething under the surface of the appearance of subservience to their husbands. In, In reality, there was power and manipulation and powerlessness and all these themes running in the background that were not, that were clear to me that I was absorbing at a very deep emotional level, along with the deep unhappiness of generations of alcoholism and food addiction, you know? And, you know, it was, I carried the weight of that literally, and I carried it as a brand in my soul. I really did. And I felt responsible for the grownups in my life and their misery. And so what right did I have to seek personal happiness or personal goals And yet, in the face of that, when I first got into art class in high school, it was the first time in my life the guy gotten seen and recognized for having some talent, some ability, other than how people saw me, which was an obese woman, young girl, whatever, and who was very strange, had strange parents, you know, didn't really fit into high school. I just, I, you know, I was so awkward in all of that. And having that save me, it literally saved my soul. Because in art, I could have some room to myself and begin to knit in a sense of possibility where there had been none except for the line from the parents, which was, you're going to either be a nun a teacher or a wife. These are your these are your career choices and you're not going to college. And guess what, Sister Bell? <laughs> I argued every night for six months. I used all my savings that I had created from waitressing for years and 
what else does a food addict do but go waitress and be in food stores? You know, so I was saving all my money and I had enough for about a year and a half of college. And I basically said, F you to my parents. I'm going anyway. They wanted my brothers to go to college, but not me. They were very gender oriented. I understand that a lot better today than I ever did then. But my fierce warrior in me, which was stubborn, I was like, I'm going. And my, and I remember my parents saying, and how do you think you're going to afford this? And I said, well, I got money saved. So there. And no clue how I was going to get beyond that first semester and a half or whatever I actually had funds. So there's an addict unleashed into the world, if there ever was. And obviously, very clear thinking, as you can tell. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so let me fast forward. So anyway, it was a... Uh, it was a creative disaster in terms of a lot of things in my life. But but what was what I want to pinpoint also in the midst of college and meeting people from all over the place and being exposed to all these ideas and diversity and perspectives and feedback and creativity were the seeds of what needed recovery, which was the alcoholism, the food addiction, and then the money stuff, because I didn't understand money either. So that was another you know, part of the larger problem, if you will. And that all started percolating then. It all started manifesting as things that became more and more clear over time. So when I was 25 or so, I accompanied a friend of mine from Chicago who had to drop a car off to Maine for her sister, because her sister had bought a parent, their parents' extra car. And she invited me to go up. Now, this is a woman who was practically my sister. I was in grad school and got to know her and befriended her, and we were often mistaken for sisters. And she's like, come on, I have to go up to Maine and da-da-da-da. And I'm like, who, Maine? Who cares about Maine? I don't want to go up to Maine. What are you talking about? I'm like, I don't want to go. She's like, come on, I need company. And I'm like, all right, all right. Because, you know, people pleasing. Fine, I'll go. So I get in the car with her. We drive up to Maine. And when we hit, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire, I thought, where are we going? I mean, the landscape was so different than Chicago. Where the hell are we going? And then I saw the rock faces on the highway. And then I saw more. And I was like, huh. And what it reminded me of was um, an earlier visit when I was 11. I left Chicago with my parents and my brothers, and we went to Italy to meet my family over there. And guess what looked a lot like Italy? Maine. And I wasn't prepared for that. So there was something going on. Anyway, we land. We have two days in Nor'easter, okay? For those of you who don't know, snow, rain, ice, fog. It's a fun time. And then two days of rain and fog and, you know, gray. And I thought, well, so far, this is really shaping up to be a fun vacation here. <laughs> I was like, all right, in a couple of days, we're going to leave. And then we had two days of sun coming through and rather nice weather. And so our sister brought us to Portland. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, Portland, Maine, 1985, because the waterfront was rough. We're talking sailors, tattoos, rough. It was a working waterfront and emphasis on the working. And I saw and heard the ocean and I heard the seagulls. And I noted to myself that there were no skyscrapers here. There was a lot of open land. There was something here that grabbed me. And I realized I had to move to Maine, which was a complete and utter surprise to me for sure. But I came back to Chicago with my friend. We took the train back. I grabbed, I left my studio stuff with her, took three bags, $200, got on the train and got my ass up to Maine, to Portland. And I decided if I couldn't find a place to stay and a job in two weeks, I just considered a vacation and come back to Chicago and start over. This is the thinking of a 25 year old 
crazy woman. Okay. All made sense to me. And I did exactly that. I did find some weird job. I, I was some switchboard operator where, where it was hysterical. I was doing medical doctor's offices and completely messing up words like Scarborough and Yarmouth. I had no idea how to pronounce anything in Maine. <laughs> and living at the YWCA. So that was my initiation. Um, But little did I know that within a few years, I would land into a community of women who were exploring spirituality and mysticism. I became a member of that group and started really investigating things that I had secretly loved, which was the astrology and the, and the taboo things of occultism and just kind of feeling my way through. And there weren't any occult bookstores in Portland, although there were plenty in Chicago, but it was knowledge I wanted. There was something that I was looking for. And that eventually um, became clear over time that there was a lot of yearning for uh, a tribal community, some connection with uh, powerful women who were not resentful and who were not victims and, you know, et cetera. And I got exposed to a number of doctrines and philosophies and cosmologies. And that was great. It expanded me, you know, and I needed expansion in that level. And then I found myself working in down East Maine for a number of years. And uh, because of some connections with people up there, I ended up getting surrounded, little did I know, by a group of women in AA. And these became friends of mine. And in order for you to go anywhere in down East Maine, you have to be prepared for like being in the car for 40 minutes at a clip because nothing is near anything. So if we were going to the movies or to eat, I would go with them to a move to a meeting, listen to the meeting, get highly entertained by the stories. And then we go out to eat and go to a movie. And that's what I was on board for. So I didn't realize that my, my brief exposures to ACOA and Al-Anon that I had gotten in Portland through, I don't even remember how I was Um, I remember being struck with the accuracy of the ACLA list and being terrified at the same time that somehow they had read my whole life story. And then I realized, oh, I'm surrounded by alcoholics. So I checked into Al-Anon when I got into Down East. I did a little exploring in there. I loved the meetings. I thought they were right on. And I was like, great, you know. Look at all the, you know, I just felt validated, right? So I'm rolling around in the validation of, wow, I figured out the problem. They were all friggin' alcoholics, you know? And then I went to AA meetings at the same time. And I started getting, I was, I, some days I was on the edge of my seat, listening to these fishermen and all these people who had these compelling stories, right? And I love a good story because I grew up with storytellers. I grew up with my father being a very good storyteller and very funny man. Um, And so I love a good story. And one day as I was sitting there and I was listening to the, you know, in, in those in this particular meeting, you would identify yourself by your first name and I'm an alcoholic. So they'd go down across the rows. You know, we were sitting in rows facing the front. And and my dear friend, Gail, who was sitting next to me said, hi, I'm Gail, I'm an alcoholic. And everybody in the room said, hey, Gail, you know, the usual. And I opened up my mouth and out of my mouth came, Mar- hi, I'm Mariana and I'm an alcoholic. And I remember her looking at me going and just smiling subtly like, oh good, you finally got it. <laughs> you know, because they knew what they were hanging around. Um, and I, I'll just backtrack because I have had, I don't know if I want to call it the pleasure of or the grace and gift of needing and having big four by fours over the head in terms of wake up, Sister Bell. Okay. So prior to my announcing that I was an alcoholic, 
alcoholic, it, there was a little drama, which included, which involved rather, I was driving back from work at a place in Brooklyn, Maine, and I was doing the back roads to get to Sedgwick, which is where I was living at the time in a rented situation with a bunch of women artists. And I knew to slow down and you know drive because there were critters everywhere. And we had had our summer farewell dinner where... I don't know how big glasses of wine appeared in front of me. Apparently I ordered them, but I had been a dry drunk all that summer because I was hanging out with people from AA and none of them drank for Pete's sake. So I didn't drink. I was like, okay. So all of a sudden I had two big glasses of white wine or two glasses of wine and some water and whatever, ate food. And I was like, great. I'm going to drive home, get to bed. And then tomorrow, da, da, da. and I'm coming around the corner and it's dark. You know, I've got my, and I'm in a 1964 Rambler, by the way, because I knew my cars. So I'm driving this car down this whining country road in the in Down East Maine, and it's dark. There are no streetlights, by the way, in Down East, in case you're wondering. And I see what appears to be a, a series of tall, uh, like tree trunks. And I thought, huh. And they're close to the road. I thought, oh, interesting. And it almost looked like birch because of the white from the headlights. You know, the light did it. And I look up, something told me to look up, and it's not birch trees or trees. It's the four legs of a moose in the road. And I was just like, holy fuck. And before I could even process it, I remember my brain going, well, at least you had a good drink and some meals before, if you're going to die now, this is a good way to go. And then my hand taking the steering wheel and dramatically moving me out of off the road so that I could go around this moose because the head was turning, the rack was, and he was, he, or I, you know, was trying to move. And I was like, holy shit. And for the first time in my life, Nancy, I had the experience of complete, and I mean complete, from the top of my head to the toes on my feet, complete shaking of my body for the rest of the trip home. So what normally would have been 15 minutes became close to 40 minutes before I got home that night. And I remember going to bed, going, why am I still alive? Why am I still alive? And crash, crashing and waking up the next morning going, yeah, you need to get your ass to a meeting because you can't do liquor anymore. That was a big sign. Guess what? In the Native American mythology, in some tribal mythology, I should qualify that, or in the medicine cards that feature the animals, the moose is the sign of self-esteem, which I had none. And yet was confronting you on that dark road Bingo. at that really dark moment. Bingo. I wanted to add my own experience of mm. at a meeting, going to a meeting to be with my brother. He drove a motorcycle at the time. And and I told him I would meet him in the church parking lot. Lots of AA mm -hmm. meetings take place in the basement mm -hmm. of churches. Sure. And I got to the parking lot. There were some cars there, no motorcycle. And it got to be time for the meeting. So I decided to walk in. I get in. There were about maybe eight people around a table. They started to introduce themselves the way you said your friend Gail did. Mm -hmm. I'm Gail. I'm an alcoholic. And everybody said, hi, Gail. And then it came around to another person who said, hi, I'm Mariana. I'm an addict alcoholic. And everybody said, hi, Mariana. And then it came to me and I said, hi, my name's Nancy. I'm here to be with my brother, Bob, who isn't here, you know, and <laughs> And they all laughed. And <laughs> and then he came in probably halfway through the meeting. 
And I had another example about three months into AA. I'd been going to meetings. I'd been standing or sitting in the back. I'd come late and I'd leave early because I didn't want to hold hands. Mm -hmm. At those times in 1980, people held hands and said the Mm -hmm. surrender prayer, you know, or or the Our Father, which was even worse in my mind, because it was religious, and I I was not. And um, so anyway, in this group, it was a discussion format. And the chairperson would call on people to comment. And I suddenly had something to say. And I raised my hand. But the oddest thing is that I wasn't called on. Like, I didn't even think that because I raised my hand, I wouldn't be called on right away, you know? So Mm -hmm. I put my hand down, somebody else talked, I really couldn't hear anything they were saying, because I was trying to get the courage to put my hand up again. And I raised my hand about four times. And um, just for those of you in Maine that might know this Washington Avenue St. Peter's Episcopal Church basement, the bathrooms are in front of the hall away from the back door. And the chairperson sat close to the bathrooms um, on that side of the room. And I finally raised my hand and I said, my name is Nancy. I'm an alcoholic. I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> and I darted for the bathroom. <laughs> and um, and I actually didn't throw up, but I, it was just all that anxiety was building. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that was my way of playing uh-huh. seat for the first time, you know, like, oh, oh it's so God. hard to get to that point of admission. And mm-hmm. I love your story of, you know, mm-hmm. every, every bit of it bringing you to that moment of saying, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm sure there are many other stories um, that we'll hear over the season that are from you, Mariana, and from our guests that are near-death experiences. I really mm-hmm. often think about recovery as a Lazarus syndrome. You know, it's like mm-hmm. rising from the dead. Um, and there's mm-hmm. some saying about, you know, um, religious is religion and heaven is for people who believe in God and recovery. Mm-hmm. It, people who believe in God and want to go to heaven and and recovery is for people who believe who get in, in hell, right? In another in another chance, another lifetime, yeah. and that have been in hell, right? Yes, yes, yeah. You know, one of the things um, I was taught, or this phrase came to me in my my evolutionary astrology work, which was the difference. And I think this is very pertinent for me as an addict, um, an alcoholic. The difference between unconscious surrender and conscious surrender. I was in unconscious surrender to the addiction and to the chemical addiction, to the food addiction. It created an emotional prison for me of my own make because I was running as fast as I could from my emotional realities. That was very key to my awareness of my history. And the conscious surrendering of the clinging to that old sense of identity in the world, the 
all the old narratives that I dragged around for years. I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. I will never have enough. I can't do enough. I'm never going to make the mark with my family. You know, all that stuff that I carried, all the flavors of that. When that conscious surrender began, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know when in recovery, maybe five, 10 years down the road in the, now in the AA recovery, I thought, why the hell don't they have a sign above the door when you come in that says, guess what? You're not here just to change one thing. Your whole entire life is going to change. Well, oh, you know, like oh, but you thank goodness. Thank goodness you know? they don't have oh, that. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I would turn right around and run out of the room screaming. Well, not even screaming. I'd just run. I'd be like, yeah, no, thanks. I'm fine. I just have this little problem. Right. You know, at 300 plus pounds and drinking copious amounts of alcohol, it was a little problem. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of a woman oh, who... God. Through food addiction recovery said she when she started her recovery, she had told Uh a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. that she wanted to lose one half of herself over 100 pounds that she had to lose. And she didn't want anything else in her life to change. Right. And we and we believe we have the right to dictate that, which is astonishing. (laughs) The you know, the egoic bubble gets burst. We don't know that, but it's going to get burst in a huge way. And Personally, I'm grateful for that, you know, the needle to the bubble all the time. But the difference, too, I want to say is what I've experienced. One of the differences before the in terms of the pre and the and the post experiences, you know, when you blow a balloon up to its fullest extent, you can take a needle and the skin is so thin that any just a delicate touch of that needle, it's going to pop. But if you deflate the balloon a bit, it won't pop because it's not been stretched that much. And I think this is what has saved my ass over and over again, is that whether or not I knew it, the egoic, you know, bubble that I was living in um, had been stretched to its maximum and that it needed to be reduced, that I needed to become right-sized on so many levels, that my life was a life of extreme swinging back and forth, not only in the addiction and the falling apart and the loss of any confidence or sense of who I was in the world or right to have a life in the world, really, some of my darkest days and nights to, you know, the grandiosity and the over-exaggeration and the overcompensation that also ruled me because I had to find a way to justify my existence at 300 plus pounds by being funnier than you or more organized or more creative or that I had to find something. And what I discovered was that language and words I could wield like a warrior and I would be up one side of you and down the other before you even knew what hit you. That's, you know, the level of sarcasm that I yielded in the world was brutal. And it was funny. I was, I was, uh, you know, smart enough to wield that. But, you know, I remember one day in early recovery when someone pointed out the definition of sarcasm, which was to tear the flesh from the bones. And I remember Oh, I never knew that. Oh, yeah. I was like, what? And I thought, do I really want to do this? But I was so defended from decades of having to fight for myself, having to be heard or seen in the malay of my family background and that conditioning that had happened. I mean, there was an there was an overlay of Catholicism patriarchal stuff, uh, the foreign element, you know, all the Italian, you know, I was in the home, it was Italy, I left the house, I was American, boom, if I did something wrong in the house, I was an American, 
okay, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, and then the gender roles was another layer. So fighting, fighting, fighting against all of that and recognizing that every time I did battle, I was going to lose my connection to my original tribe which is very true. I did. You know, I don't eat like them. I don't think like them. I don't drink like them anymore. I don't do any of that. And, you know, part of the struggle in recovery is I think many of us have this deep fear of what we will lose in order to recover. And so part of that was, you know, something we've heard, I've heard many times, which is the loss of the connection to the creative. Well, guess what? You know, I had to have a full pot of coffee in my studio with booze in it. And I would hand it out to people like a grand queen of the studios. And that fueled my, you know, my creativity. I was convinced I had to at least have that in the morning to start my day. What a, what a, you know, crazy thing. Anyway, I... I remember thinking I needed to have this stuff in me in order to create. And the truth, as it has been revealed to me, um, is I had a deep, deep fear of true intimacy with creativity because I knew it was source. I knew I would have to tap into this power that was way bigger than me. And I was not in control in the way I thought I was. I was deluding myself. So that is a whole show. <laughs> I'm sure it is. For, for a future date, yeah, right? The intimacy sure. with the yeah. creative. I yeah. love that. I'm going to yeah. write that down too. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. In coming to conclusion today, I was caught by a word I know you've used before referring to your work in evolutionary astrology. Can mm-hmm. you give us and the listeners like a very short description of what evolutionary astrology sure. is and maybe Absolutely. how they contact you to learn more or if they want sure. a reading for themselves? Sure. If they have questions, whatever. Sure. So evolutionary astrology um, provides a person a soul with the karmic history of their most recent past lives. In other words, what are the patterns? What is the conditioning that you have arrived on the planet with? What are the environmental factors, otherwise known as your tribal family, that you have called in to re-imprint and reawaken the unresolved traumas and the unresolved challenges of the soul? In this lifetime, the soul not only brings the past and the karmic baggage, if you will, the the challenges. It also brings in the current desires that it seeks in order to integrate and resolve these pieces, these traumas, and these old stories. And so what the chart represents are your opportunities and the desire of the soul to come back into this current life and be prepared to face things because you are now ready to do so. Now, that does not eliminate free will. You have free will and you have choices. So the chart is a potential and it is a mirror and you are free to do what you choose to do. Right. It's a potential and a mirror and not a prediction. Correct. So the power of the soul's voice is very clear and the themes are very clear and they're very defined. They're very specific. Um, There's an inherent beauty here that's beyond measure and it's a privilege to do the work. So if people have questions or inquiries, um, they can go to my website, which is marianacasagranda.com. And uh, I am, my business name is La Strega, which is Italian for the witch. And that has a whole story behind it as well. 
But anyway, that's how you find me. Um, my phone number's there. My email's there. You can contact me at lastregamariana at uh, Gmail. That also is another way to contact me. So if I'm even pronouncing it correctly, Lastrega? <laughs> Lastrega. How, how, how do you spell that? It's um, so La, L-A, and then capital S. P-R-E-G-A is Rega. All right. Yeah. You lovely witch you. (laughs) I'm trying. Let me tell you, I love it. uh, I've come to reclaim that heritage, uh, having been one in other lifetimes. What a surprise, right? No. Yeah, (laughs) we're back. We are back, baby. Let me tell you, we are all back. (laughs) I assure you. (laughs) Anyway. Well, Mm. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and I look forward to the entire season of working together and talking about the interviews and topics that come mm-hmm. out of the interviews with several artists um, to come. So, Thank you. I do as well. Terrific. And for all of you listeners, come back and hear more or go to my website and you can see all the archived shows Be sure to subscribe because it really helps us get more traction and more attraction to the show if you subscribe to it. So go to nancyadair.com. That's N-A-N-C-I-A-D-A-I-R.com. And under the LTGW podcast, there is a button to subscribe. We also have there some wonderful merch. Can you imagine a t-shirt with liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores on it? Or (laughs) a cap? that says that and um or your water bottle or any great merchandise there's quite a bit of it so take a look and um we'll see you again next time do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction we might oh stories about recovery too Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. I'm Nancy Adair, the host of LTGW, where we explore the stories from the dark and the light side of both addiction and recovery. Our show is currently free to listen to and it's advertisement free. Therefore, we're relying on your support to keep bringing you these powerful stories. 